You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thank you for joining us this week as we continue our teaching series on the book of Revelation. Good morning, Real Life. How are we? Awesome. Hey, I'm Paul Patterson. I'm the Moscow Student Ministries coach here at Real Life. Glad to be with you. My wife and I, we've been uh, part of Real Life for about four years, coming up on four years. And if you know our story, uh, or if you don't know our story, here quickly, we were part of a couple other churches working there, and both of those experiences ended very badly. Um, and so my wife and I, we tapped out of vocational ministry. We just, we didn't want to risk the pain, the failure, the hurt. We didn't want to uproot our family yet again. And so we, we were working in, uh, I was managing a restaurant for a number of years, and we were just kind of doing our thing. We never gave up on the church. We were always involved. We volunteered. But as far as being a part of that level of involvement, we just weren't going to do it again. And then one day, there's this tall, awkward, dorky white guy that I went to Bible college with who called me that was working here asking if I'd be interested in their youth ministry position. And I said, no. And he's like, oh, come on, why? I'm like, just no. And so he's like, well, won't you, won't you pray about it? And I said, yeah, sure, I'll pray about it. Uh, you, know, you know how it is. Uh, and so we prayed about it, which means we didn't at all. But a couple of the guys that were in my life that were my accountability partners, they encouraged me to at least consider it. And through not praying about it, we eventually realized this is where God was calling us. And honestly, when, when we came up here, I was still angry and hurt and fearful. I was not happy. But we knew this is where God was calling us. We knew this was an obedience thing for us. And through the years of being here, my wife and I have experienced such healing and growth. Uh, we've experienced a church that is real, a, a church that loves, a church that actually fights for relationships. And what's cool is us as a church, like we're just a part of a longer lineage, a longer legacy of churches that started when Aaron and Jim Putman decided they were going to plant a church in Post Falls. And since then, thousands of people every Sunday come together to celebrate our Lord Jesus. Thousands of people have been influenced and impacted in real tangible ways. Mothers have gotten their kids back. Kids have gotten their parents back. Families have been healed. Addictions have been overcome. Like there's been some amazing stories. And just here in the Plus, like the legacy we have here is, is just a blessing to be a part of. And this isn't about patting us on the back. Um, what this is about is about a f- not nine months ago, Aaron pitched an idea to me and I told him no. Kind of laughed at him like, no. And then, he, uh, and then his dad came to me and his dad told me not to tell his son because his son would be mad. Uh, sorry, Charlie. And he pitched the same idea to me and I didn't say no because it's Charlie. I wanted to be nice. I just kind of smiled and nodded. And then Josh and Aaron both, both pitched the same idea again, and I said, heck no, kind of laughing at it, like, you're crazy, never. And then before, right before our Christmas vacation of 2016, they seriously, directly wanted me to prayerfully consider if I and my wife and my family would go plant a church in Missoula. And uh, we went through the same type of experience yet again, where we said no, Absolutely not. We're not ready. This isn't right for us. This is not what God wants for us. And before we knew it, God, through our praying, made it very clear this is what God wanted us to do. And it's been a long road, even just getting to the point of saying yes, 
And we wanted to announce it earlier, but just timeline and vacations and camps, and it's been very difficult to try to get to the point where we could announce it. But in middle of August, August 13th right now is our last Sunday we will be here, and then we'll be taking a vacation, moving to Missoula. And what I want to be clear is that this is not an us thing. This is an us thing. This is not us leaving, but us being sent. This is yet again the ongoing legacy of what is Real Life Ministries, of what happened years and years ago where a couple people decided to take a risk to go plant a church in Post Falls. And then several years ago when yet again Aaron and the team that came down here decided yet again to bring the same message, the same community of God to yet a new area. And now we are going to do that with Missoula. Missoula is kind of like Moscow in many ways, just bigger. Um, what's interesting about Moscow Missoula, though, is Missoula is 72.5% of them. So almost three-quarters of Missoula claims no religious affiliation whatsoever. It's one of the most unchurched cities in America. They struggle a lot with uh, meth specifically, but addictions in general, homelessness, poverty is relatively high there, a lot of single families, single-parent families, and so there's a lot, a lot of good that a church like us can do for that area and when we bring the kingdom of God crashing into earth there. And so this is, I've been very adamant with Aaron and with many people, like I can't do this alone. I won't do this alone. And so what, we're not just announcing it, we're asking for your prayers. Um, I am still terrified. Uh, I'm still like a lot of questions in my head about how it's gonna look, uh, but we're gonna, we're gonna go and we're gonna do it and we're gonna make it happen. And so we need, thanks. We, uh, we, need, we desperately need your prayers. Uh, we need your connections, your resources, your, the, the people that you know in and around Missoula that are moving to Missoula, uh, those people that are looking for a church body and they haven't found where they belong yet. Um, perhaps, perhaps that's because there's a church coming that they can help birth. Uh, we would love for you to prayerfully consider how it is that you can financially contribute uh, to make this possible as well. We'll have more details about that coming out. Uh, if you want to know more, talk more with me. I'd love to sit down with you, have coffee, even if it's just a phone call. So please follow up with me. I would, I'd love to connect with any of you that are interested. And if you're interested in going yourself, uh, let me know. We're, we're looking for people. All right. Well, now that that's done, let's do... Uh, let's. Let's divert and distract and get, get into the sermon. Um, I just want to thank you guys. Uh, I, can't, I can't say enough how much you mean to me. And uh, I can't say enough how it feels to leave a church on good terms. It's weird. Like, I haven't had that experience before. Um, so thank you. Thank you for loving my family and I. All right, all right, uh, let's totally deflect into the sermon now. Uh, last week, we, the, the main thing we need to touch on this week uh, to, from last week is that uh, Revelation is apocalyptic literature, and it's a very unique type of literature, and specifically, it's confined to a very specific time frame between about 200 B.C. and about 100 A.D., it's during this time that the Jews, who are back in their land but are still being oppressed by a Gentile Roman government, that they are wrestling with all of these promises found back in these older 
uh, Old Testament scriptures about the kingdom of God and about uh, them being free. And they're wrestling with these questions like, where is God? What is, what is he up to? And it's through this time as they start wrestling with these Old Testament scriptures that they start writing these other books and these other, uh, this literature that we call apocalyptic. And we have to understand that Revelation is one of those. Because Revelation is going to wrestle with the same type of questions and the same type of circumstances and events. This is, this is a real book to a real people in a real time, experiencing real things. And it's to that group of people that this book is written to. And if we can wrap our minds around that, I promise you, this book will come alive to you in ways that, that Nicolas Cage and the Left Behind series never did for you. Uh, which... Uh, here is a great movie. I haven't watched it yet. Uh, what we're going to do today, though, is we want to do the second part of the introduction. We referenced last week that John uh, is going to pull his, sto- his stuff from somewhere. And so what we a- want to answer today is where is John getting his stuff? And as you know, the answer always is it's in the text. And so what we want to do is to cover some of the primary sources today. So first off, let's just talk about the three main sources we need to know from Scripture, and that is Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. These are the three main Old Testament books that, Daniel is gonna, that John is going to pull most of his references from. There is imagery and timelines and plots and narratives found in all of these books that when you read Revelation are going to show up over and over and over again. So if you don't understand these books, you're not going to understand the book of Revelation. And one of the main themes these three books are going to have is that God's people are living under, oppress- under an oppressive kingdom. That, that is the main narrative of all of these. And the question that each one of these books is going to deal with is what is going on and why? And sometimes they don't give clear, easy answers. Sometimes it's just the thing you need to know is that we have a king who's above the king that's oppressing you right now. And you have to trust that. And that's going to be the main things that he's going to pull from. Now, John is also going to be building from all these other Old Testament references as well. Uh, Genesis is going to show up over and over again. Exodus is going to show up all over the place. Numbers, Psalms, Isaiah, and Joel. Like We might as well just list every Old Testament book that we have because for the most part, at some point, John is going to reference, quote, or allude to it. And so what we, what we see just from this is that the book of Revelation is not a new thing. This is the story of God's people. Uh, this is a story given to a people who are desperately trying to hold on to hope. And one of the most common themes throughout the book of Revelation is that God's people need to endure. Like we need to hold on to courage. We, we, need, we need to hold on. And what's really sad is we've turned a book about hope into a book about fear. That you better watch out because if you don't do it right, God's going to come and then you're going to go through some really bad stuff. That's not the message of Revelation. The message of Revelation is you're going to go through bad stuff, but there's a king who's above it all and you need to hold on and hope. Now, so John is going to use a lot of this stuff. And it's important for us to remember that John is not creating this up at thin air. Yes, Jesus gives it to him, but Jesus himself is going to use his own book to write his own story. 
The book of Revelation, is, it quotes and uses the Old Testament, Old Testament scriptures more than any other book of the New Testament. Some estimate as high as one-third of every word found in Revelation is a reference and allusion to, back to the Old Testament, which is really impressive. I mean, consider for you to write 1,000 words without using Google or Bible Gateway or anything like that, just from the top of your head, write a story and make sure one-third of everything that's in there is found in the Old Testament. And this is not one of the implications. It's a, free, a freebie for you. Lucky you. Uh, how well do you know your text? Like, do you get in it? Do you study it? Do you pull it apart? Do you memorize it? And it's very clear that when Jesus gives this revelation to John, he's expecting his people to know their story, where they came from, who they are. And the Old Testament is our story. The Old Testament is the story of the New Testament. Now, along with the primary sources of Scripture itself, there's a whole bunch of other secondary sources that show up. And we call these the Jewish apocalyptic literature. Now, for the Jews, these weren't considered Scripture. Instead, what these were were almost this like nonfiction fiction commentary on interpretation of Old Testament passages. Because at, what you'll see through the work is as, every, uh, as the years go by, the questions that they thought they had answered, they were wrong, and so they had to find a new answer. For example, when you look at Daniel and you see the statue and it represents four different kingdoms or the beasts and it's four different kingdoms, they thought the last kingdom would have been Greece. But then Greece was conquered by the Romans, so now they have to figure this out again. And, and they're, they're going to wrestle with all of these themes as well, like, who, who is the Son of Man? Who is that? And like, they didn't know. And so they, they had different answers and different, like, they thought of different things. And John is going to leverage that literature that Jews would have been familiar with. Uh, things like First Enoch and Four Ezra. Uh, we're not going to get into four Ezra today, but there's a lot, of various, a lot of huge similarities. They're wrestling with the same questions, trying to figure out what God is up to. But now John is going to write to this new Jewish slash partially Gentile church. And he's going to give them, and remember they're facing, they've already been facing persecution, and they're about to face an even harder persecution. They're going to have the same type of questions, like the Messiah came. We've met the King Jesus. We thought the kingdom of God was breaking forth on earth, but look what is happening to my kids, my spouses. Our possessions have been taken away. We're hungry, we're starving, we're cold. Is this what the kingdom of God looks like? And these are the same things uh, that this, this other literature has been wrestling with. And so we want to uh, kind of break up some of these analogies. But before we get there, we want to jump into the book of Revelation chapter 1 again. And what I want you to be doing as we read Revelation 1, 9 through 20 is I want you to be looking for the images. Look for the images. So here we go. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. So you already see what we're being called to here. Like, we're, we're connected in this, both the suffering, the kingdom, and the enduring of the tribulation while we serve the kingdom. The patience endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos. On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, 
Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, which we all would. We'd be doing more than just falling. Like the bodily functions would be malfunctioning. Like if you, if you saw this, if you turned around and there was this guy, you would be terrified. But... He laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. By the way, this is going to be a theme that shows up over and over again. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things you have seen, those that are and those that are about to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, what we see just in this introduction is that this letter, this book of Revelation, is written to these seven churches. And we, what we often do is we go through the seven church letters, and then we, in our brains, put this mental divide between the seven church letters and the rest of the book of Revelation. We disconnect the book. Like, this is what Jesus says to them, the rest is for us. No, it's the rest of the book is for these people. This is what they need to hear and what they need to know now. The other thing we see in that passage is that Jesus tells us this book of Revelation is not literal. The, the lampstands are actually the churches. The stars in his hand are actually the angels of the churches. So Jesus tells us right from the beginning that, hey, everything you see here is a symbol of something else. And this is what a popular literature does. It leverages symbols and metaphors, this grandiose, heavenly, demonic, beasts, creatures, language, to tell a story. And this is what we're going to find in this. But in this passage, as we read through it, as we've read through it there were several references to the Old Testament. Several. Let's just cover a few of them. When we read about the golden sash around his chest, that is from the book of Daniel. When we read about the eyes that were like a flame of fire, that's more Daniel. When we read about the feet were like brownish bronze refined in a furnace, more Daniel. When we read about the voice was like a roar of many waters, that was Ezekiel. When we read about the two-edged sword, that's a reference to God from Isaiah. And we'll come back to that here in a second. Uh, actually, we'll come back to it now. The reason why that's important is because as we go from the Old Testament scriptures and we go into that 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the church is wrestling with these questions. Uh, more, like, not just about what is God up to, where is the kingdom, where is our relief and our freedom, but also what, who is the Son of Man? Like, who is that figure that we read about in Daniel? Uh, how is this all going to take place? Who are the kingdoms? And what we find in the, the book of Daniel 
is that there's this two natures that show up, and we'll come back to that here in a second. But we also find uh, that in the book of Revelation, uh, so we see, we see God and we see this other person. And for the Jews, this other person at first was never assumed to be an individual, but a, represent, a representative of the Jews. This was the best of the Jews that they had to offer, that if we stay pure and stay devout, God will give us this kingdom that he's promising us. And what we're going to find as we work through it, that eventually there's a, a merging of ideas as we approach the person in Jesus and the New Testament. But to understand all that, once again, we need to understand that John, when he writes Revelation, is going to be, he needs you to understand all these Old Testament references. And we don't have time, we don't have time to go through them all, so don't worry. But we, what we are going to do is we're going to quickly run through some of the similarities between Ezekiel and the book of Revelation to see if you kind of get the idea that these two, that the Old Testament and Revelation are connected. So when we talk about the throne vision that John has, we see that in Revelation 4, we see in Ezekiel 1. When we talk about the book that was opened, we see that in Revelation 5 and Ezekiel 2 and 3. When we talk about the four plagues that we see in Revelation 6, we also see the four plagues in Ezekiel 5. The, the saints that were slain under the altar, we see that in Revelation 6, we also see it in Ezekiel 6. The wrath of God that's poured out, we read that in Revelation 6, we see it in Ezekiel 7. The seal on the saints' foreheads, we see that in Revelation 7 and Ezekiel 9. The coals from the altar, Revelation 8, Ezekiel 10. Are you getting the point? Okay, I guess not. No more delay, Revelation 10, Ezekiel 12. The eating of the book, Revelation 10, Ezekiel 2. The measuring of the temple, Revelation 11, Ezekiel 40 through 43. Jerusalem and Sodom, Revelation 11, Ezekiel 16. The cup of wrath, Revelation 14, Ezekiel 23. The vine of the land, Revelation 14, Ezekiel 15. Are you getting the point? Uh, The great harlot, Revelation 17 through 18, Ezekiel 16 and 23. The lament over the city, Revelation 18, Ezekiel 27. The scavenger's feast, Revelation 19, Ezekiel 38. The first resurrection, Revelation 20, Ezekiel 37. The battle of Gog and Magog, Revelation 20, Ezekiel 38 through 39. The new Jerusalem, Revelation 21, Ezekiel 40 through 48. The river of life, Revelation 22, Ezekiel 47. Are you getting the point? Okay, if you don't understand these books, you don't understand Revelation. And more importantly, what you need to know is that, Re- that Revelation is the story of God's people. It, it's, it's been the same story. This is why he's going to leverage all the Jewish uh, pseudepigrapha, all the commentaries, all the wrestling matches and discussions they've been having. This is why he's going to leverage the Old Testament books like Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zechariah. And we don't even have time to go through Zechariah, but there's, just, there's almost as many similarities, even though the book's shorter. Like, this is why he's going to leverage that. This is why he's going to use imagery from Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joel, uh, Isaiah, the Psalms. This is the story of God's people. It's a story who, of people who live in oppression and yet rise above it. And if they remain faithful, God shows up and redemption and healing come to the world and salvation arrives. This is the story of our people. What I want to do is I want to... Uh, read a passage from one of the visions of Daniel 7. And I want to read this, and I want you to look for the similarities between what we've already read in Revelation 1 and what are here. And then we'll go back and read Revelation 1 again. So Daniel 7, 9 through 14. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancients of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. Sound familiar? 
a question. Okay. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from behind him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked. Then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Sound familiar? Oh, come on. Does it sound familiar? As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven. There came one like a son of man. By the way, this term is one of the most commonly used titles Jesus uses for himself. And he came to the ancients of days and, were, and was presented before him. So how many are there? Ancient of days, son of man. How many? Two. We'll come back to that. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. To all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This, like, do you realize Daniel is writing to a people who are living in Babylon. They've had their kingdom taken away. This is, this is the context to that. And what Daniel and what God is speaking through Daniel is keep on keeping on. Don't let go. The story isn't done yet. And what you're facing right now is just one part of a larger story. Now, in this passage of Daniel 7, we see that there's these two figures. And as we read through the apocalyptic literature, what we find is that uh, the Jews are trying to figure out who they are. Now, obviously, the Ancient of Days is God, but who is the Son of Man? And as they wrestle with the question of who the Son of Man is, at first they assume that the Son of Man is the representative of the Jews. But as time goes on, they start thinking maybe the Son of Man is not just a a representation of the people, but maybe it's an individual. And then the idea of Messiah starts forming. And so when they start discussing who is the Messiah, what is he going to do, what's his role, they realize there's two parts to the Messiah. And so they come up with two different Messiahs, a kingly Messiah who will come with military power and conquest and save Israel, as well as a priestly Messiah that will restore the religious identity of his people. Now, as time goes on and we enter into the Gospels, what we see Jesus do is he merges the two ideas of Messiah, both king and priest. And we'll come to this at the very end of today's, not sermon, but service. He merges those two ideas. What we also find when we read Revelation is that going back to the beginning of Daniel with the Ancient of Days and Son of Man, that what happens in Revelation is these two individuals merge they're one in the same. The same description given to the Ancient of Days is given to Jesus. The same description given to the Son of Man is the same given to Jesus. The one who sits on the throne is Jesus. And so we start seeing this merging. Now, the book of Revelation like, is going to emphasize the deity and the lordship of our Jesus Christ. And it's going to invite us to radically trust in that. So let's read Revelation 1 again. 12 through 20, and notice yet again Daniel that we see in it. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. 
The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like a roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I had the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Like, do you hear Daniel in this passage? This instantly from the beginning of Revelation is reminding God's people about the same things they've been reading for hundreds and hundreds of years. But now they have the pleasure and the blessing of actually having met him. They've met the king. He has arrived. And the kingdom of God is here now and they're a part of it. And so everything that we're going to read through the book of Revelation is going to call us back. It's not, it's not calling us forward. It's calling us back to remember and to hope and to have faith. We want to read uh, from First Enoch 46. It's one of those, uh, we wouldn't, they, they wouldn't call it scripture, but it's one of these stories that as the Jews were wrestling with the same questions the Christians are now wrestling with. And what, what I want you to look for is yet again the similarities. Yet again the similarities. Because when the people during John's time read the book of Revelation, they're familiar with the questions. They're familiar with the struggles. They're familiar with the the uncertainty and the ambiguity of of what it means to be faithful to God in the midst of suffering. So let's read 1 Enoch 46. And there I saw one who was like a head of days, and his head was white like wool. And with him there was another whose face had the appearance of a man, and his face was full of grace. So you see that dual nature yet again that is merged in, in the revelation of John. Like one of the holy angels, and I asked one of the holy angels who went with me and showed me all the secrets about that son of man, who he was and where he came from and why he was sent with the head of days. And he answered me and he said to me, this is the son of man who has righteousness and with whom righteousness dwells. He will reveal the treasure of that which is secret for the Lord of spirits has chosen him. And through his uprightness, his lot has surpassed all before the Lord of spirits forever. And this son of man whom you have seen will rouse the kings and the powerful from their resting places and the strong from their thrones. He will loose the reins of the strong and will break the teeth of the sinners. He will cast down the kings from their thrones and from their kingdoms for they do not exalt him. Sounds very revelation-y, right? Like you, you, it's important that we don't miss this. That before we get into the content of Revelation, that we remember the very real context to which this book is written. Before we get into our debates, before we get into are you premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, or something else, before we get into those, we need to realize that this letter meant something to them. That this is an ongoing conversation of hundreds of years, thousands of years, if you look at the Old Testament itself. And it's very appropriate that we began our sermon year with Genesis and we're ending with Revelation because what we're going to find is the same story that was true in Genesis 1 and 2 is the same story that's true in Revelation 21 and 22. 
because we serve the same God. Now, we're going to work towards our implications. And so if you are serving communion, please go ahead and head back, and we're going to have communion. If you're new with us, our communion is an open table, and what that means is as long as you want to celebrate the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection, we invite you to do so with us, your family. Implication number one, God's sovereignty invites us to divinely hope in the midst of chaos. And once again, this is not a new thing that we read in Revelation. This is always our call. It's always our call. Do we trust that our God is up to something more in the world? And we often isolate our, our own story to our present situation. Like we, we often end it there. But we are part of something so much more. And we have to radically hope, defiantly hope, when there's no logical reason to, because we know, we know who our God is and what he's up to. Second implication is this. This is a book of hope for the people in their day. And understanding that helps me find hope in my day. You have to remember that the people reading this weren't like experiencing a financial collapse. They weren't just struggling with their mortgages and how to pay rent. It was more than that. They were starving because they couldn't buy food. They were hiding because they were fearful of being arrested and beaten. They had their children, their spouses killed. Like this is what they're struggling with. They're cold at night because they can't buy coal because they're not willing to bend their knee. Like this is their struggle. And yet they endured. Romans 15 verses 5 and 6 tell us Scripture's purpose is to encourage us and to encourage us to endure. And if we can trust in that, if we can know, if we can figure out how these people did it, and remember that these people, through their oppression, overcame the Roman government, that these people lasted longer than one of the greatest civilizations we've ever seen, that they overthrew Caesar through their endurance and their hope and holding on to the calling and person of Jesus. If we can learn that, I think we can overcome what we face in today's world. If we can learn that, we would be a people that would look really weird to the rest of the world when they're freaking, about, freaking out about China and North Korea and Putin and the Middle East and ISIS and Trump. Like, if we, if we can learn that there would be a hope that this world has not seen for a while. Third implication, my circumstances don't determine the sovereignty of God. And this one hurts because we like to think it does. Because when I've been praying for years for my son and yet he still struggles, when I've been praying for years for my parents and yet they never get back together, when I've been asking God to take this suffering and this thing I struggle with away, and for years I've been wrestling with it, and I just feel like giving up. It's easy to feel like God isn't in control. The story of Revelation invites us to remember that he always is, and that whatever we're experiencing now, we're part of something more. And we will, if we endure, we will get a crown of life. It may not be in this life, but it will be coming. The storm will end and day will dawn if we will hold on.
And lastly, we have to stay connected to the people who will consistently pull us back to this reality. The book of Revelation is not written to an individual, it's written to a people. A people that have to hold on together. That have to, have to link arms. Have to support each other. Because they have nothing else. And if they don't do it together, they won't be able to do it alone. And this is the call to us. If you're suffering right now, you desperately need people around you who are going to call you to a greater reality. And if you're comforting right now, your call is to be there for those that are suffering. And not just in word, but in action. To, to tangibly help. To help relieve their pain and also to walk with them in it. But not to take it away. And we're reminded... that the key figure in the book of Revelation, the one who is named the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And when John looks to see the lion, he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb as if it was slaughtered. A son of man who overthrew the Roman government, not by force and coercion, not by fear, but by sacrifice and death and torture. We're reminded of the ancient of days as he sat with his small group of men. And he said, the one thing you need to know, the one commandment you need to follow that will usher in the kingdom of God is this, love one another as I have loved you. And so when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we remember that. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, take and eat, this is my body. And whenever we eat this, we remember, so let's remember. Then he took the cup, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. We're reminded what the covenant takes, and it's not always easy. Let's remember him. Father, I want to thank you for who you are, that you're not a God who gives petty, cheap, easy answers to hard questions. But you are a God who calls us to trust, to hold on. You're also a God who promises you'll hold on to us even when we can't hold on to you. So Lord, wherever we're at, as we start to read Revelation, help us to remember that you are king, that above it all, the death, the pain, the sin of this world, there is still a good God who reigns and he will not cease until his kingdom overcomes it all. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter and visit our website, liferotp.com.